Hello, everyone, and welcome to Heart Matters, a show about all aspects of heart health brought to you in partnership with Providence Heart Institute and Boston Scientific. The Providence Heart Institute is a leading integrated network of cardiovascular care with a focus on putting our patients at the heart of everything we do. And we're committed to making a positive difference in every life we touch. As part of that commitment, we're bringing the doctors to you. I'm Dr. John Wagoner, interventional cardiologist practicing in Olympia, Washington, and joining me today is my friend and colleague, Dr. Jonathan McDonough, interventional cardiologist from Anchorage, Alaska, and we're here to discuss the topic of interventional cardiology. We'll explain what that means and how the practice plays a role in heart health. Hello, Dr. McDonough. It's great to speak with you today. Uh, good morning, Dr. Wagner. It's, it's great to be here. Yeah. <laughs> John, tell us about yourself and the work that you do with Providence and yeah. why you decided on the field of interventional cardiology. Yeah, sure. So, uh, first of all, thanks for having me on the podcast. It's a super fun experience for me. So, I think you and I are probably of similar age. Um, I initially went to medical school and then internal medicine residency, like all cardiologists. I did my training at the University of Washington in Seattle at the time. That program was super, uh, a lot of folks went into pulmonary and critical care medicine because it was a really strong department. Um, and I knew I was kind of interested in a procedural field. You know, I was always like putting central lines in, in the ER and all that kind of stuff. And then um, my wife and I decided to move to Alaska for a few years. And I was a general internist and ended up working in Soldotna, Alaska, uh, as sort of a traditional old school internist where we take care of our patients, you know, inpatient, outpatient, ICU, the whole nine yards. And um did that for about five years. And I had, before we moved up there, I'd sort of put my applications together for a cardiology fellowship, but kind of shelved them. And then that was back in the early 2000s or sort of mid 2000s, I guess. And um, back when we were in residence, interventional cardiology was basically stents and there was a lot of eight French sheaths and a lot of complications. I remember running to codes all the time you know, near or around the cath lab. And it just didn't, I was sort of like, oh, I, don't, I don't know about that. <laughs> and then, <laughs> and then um, when I was an, an internist, I think, you know, right when I finished residency, actually the uh, first by the ICD went in. And I remember being an internist, I learned to read echoes as an internist because there were no cardiologists in rural Alaska. So I kind of figured that out and seeing a patient whose heart had basically recovered from resynchronization. I was like, oh, that's pretty cool. And then somebody published a paper that everybody thought was crazy about doing a balloon expandable catheter-based valve intervention. And I thought, wow, that's pretty cool. And so kind of long story short, I was like, I kind of want to get on this train, you know, because there's a lot of good stuff happening and a lot of opportunity to really help people. So I threw my hat in the ring of applying to fellowship. And I thought, well, nobody's going to really be interested in some guy who's been just a junkyard internist from rural Alaska. Um, but the next thing I knew, I was at the University of Michigan back in fellowship. And I sort of vacillated a little bit between EP and intervention because uh, EP also seemed pretty cool, but I didn't quite have the patience. You know, back in those days, they would do AFib ablations, one little dot at a time and take six hours and Taver was just rolling out and it was clearly like something that I thought was really cool. So that that's what really drew me to the field. Here we are back in Alaska a couple of years later. <laughs> Fantastic. 
yeah, you you remind me a lot of the excitement I had in those early days as well. Cardiology just yeah. seemed like this field that had so many things going for it, and you had such yeah. a, a capacity to make a major impact on people. They could go from being very sick to just oh, yeah. being a dramatic turnaround in how they did. So yeah, oh yeah, a lot of fun, and I I, I chose it for the exactly you know much the same reason. Yeah. So. Yeah, I mean, still, I mean, even 10 years later, like taking care of a STEMI patient, you know, big anterior myocardial infarction and seeing that patient going from being near dead to being fine and saying, hey, when can I go home in a matter of minutes? <laughs> um, when can I have, you know, coffee? You know, I'm like, yeah, in a minute. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you've kind of alluded to some of this a little bit, yeah. but let's be really yeah. clear. So a lot, yeah. of, I, I know a lot of my patients don't really understand when I, when we talk about being an interventional cardiologist, what, yeah. what does that mean? And how's that different from being a general cardiologist? Yeah, good question. And I, I also think that people don't understand how rapidly our field has changed, you know, just not only in the past, like, you know, since it started, right, which is basically maybe 30 years ago, right, it has every five years is completely almost a different specialty in a way, not totally, but it evolves very quickly. And, you know, I always tell people ask me what I do is like, well, there's two things. I put tricky wires in tricky places and <laughs> um, I block things that are supposed to be open and I close things that are supposed to be closed, you know, that are open that should be closed and <laughs> within the vascular system. So, you know, the, the cool thing that I think about our specialty is that, you know, we're obviously very, linked to evolving technology to be able to, to do minimally invasive procedures to really impact the cardiovascular system, usually the heart or sometimes in the peripheral circulation by opening up arteries with various tools. The, obviously, the valvular interventions has been a big change for us. Yeah. Right. A lot of people are get, get confused between an interventional cardiologist yeah. and a cardiac surgeon who often For does sure. you know, um, yeah. similar things, but they do it by yeah. opening the chest. They do it with a scalpel where we tend to do right. things through catheter-based technology. And, and Yeah, this. I always tell patients, do you want the Roto-Rooter guy or sometimes you need the guy with the excavator and, you know. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Exactly. Yeah. So yeah, it's funny. I've kind of give, I've kind of given up correcting my friends and neighbors, and they sort of say, "Oh, I got this friend who's a cardiac surgeon." I'm like, I'm "Not really. A, not a surgeon." You know, and <laughs> that goes on for a while, and then I just sort of like, "Okay." <laughs> right. Right. Yeah. yeah. So you kind of you also alluded to some of this too. So what sort of things? What what sort of heart conditions and diseases do you generally um, treat and, and diagnose with interventional cardiology? So kind of have almost like four buckets. Um, I think the most important bucket for us are people with acute coronary syndromes. That's a, our technical term, right, for people who are having heart attacks or kind of almost heart attacks, not always the big ones that you are sort of represented like the TV type of heart attack. But I think that's where our specialty often has the most impact. And so, you know, that's caused by people who've developed plaque from a buildup of cholesterol and calcium and inflammatory material in the heart arteries or the coronary arteries. And then uh, it either ruptures or erodes and causes a little or bigger blood clot to form and a sudden occlusion in an artery. And so, you know, we're here 24-7 to interrupt that process when it happens. And that's, I think, by far the most important thing we do. I spend a lot of time also taking care of patients who have a more stable but symptomatic problem where people develop heart artery blockages, but they're not sudden or acute. They've just developed over time and trying to figure out, you know, are they blocked enough to be A, the cause of their symptoms and B, 
are they blocked enough that doing something about it is going to make it better? And that is not just procedures, right? It's also trying to figure it out from a diagnostic standpoint and then helping develop a lifetime management plan for that condition. The other bucket that I'm particularly passionate about is um, valvular heart disease, right? So that did not used to be a domain of interventional cardiology, but it more and more is. And um, I was super fortunate to have a mentor in fellowship who was a non-invasive echocardiography cardiologist, just learned a ton about valvular heart disease. And so, and then with the evolution of technology that's available to us with replacing the aortic valve and then technologies to work on the mitral valve, that's been a, a very rewarding thing to be a part of. And then my fourth bucket which is a smaller part of my practice these is like unblocking arteries that have developed blockages, particularly to the legs, where to the point where uh, it's causing enough ischemia or insufficient blood flow to the point where you know, tissue loss or there's a risk of amputation occurring. So I generally don't try to do interventions in those arteries unless it's really, really needed because the, there's a long-term risk to that procedure as well. Fantastic. So, yeah. th- like you yeah. said, th- things have been evolving quickly yeah. in interventional cardiology. Um, and, you know, and I, what I've seen is that we're actually starting to subspecialize. You know, interventional yeah. cardiology was, yeah. a, was a special, it was subspecialty within cardiology, you know, when you and I first got involved. And now we're seeing subspecialization within interventional cardiology as well. Can you right. kind of, um, can you kind of be, uh, specific about some of those subspecialties that are developing? Yeah, for sure. So and I, I'm probably guilty of trying to participate in too many of them, I guess. The, you know, I think a lot of, you know, we're constantly recruiting and, you know, newer interventional cardiology fellows who are coming out are often sort of differentiating themselves between being primarily focused on structural heart disease, which is a lot of the mostly valve stuff that I mentioned. Um, there's some other things too. And then, um, uh, or c- coronary work, you know, the heart arteries, especially complex coronary work, um, which is also rapidly, has rapidly evolved. And so I, I do think that those are two particular areas of focus. And, and there's some kind of niche stuff that you find in universities, you know, that maybe a little bit less common to find somebody who just specializes in say adult congenital heart disease in the um in the routine setting but there are individuals who specialize only in doing interventions or deploying devices in the heart to correct congenital or you know stuff that people are born with right so like holes uh, in the heart and that holes sort of in the things. heart right. holes in the heart or <laughs> shunts or you know uh, i don't even know what some of the stuff they're trying to do <laughs> every, every now and then you open a journal article and you're like wow somebody put that thing where <laughs> like, okay. amazing um, it is amazing and, and but i think the between the structural and the sort of more complicated coronary work for patients who maybe are don't want it to or unable to get open heart surgery those are the biggest sort of practical areas and um, and then the endovascular sort of peripheral stuff. I think there's still some of us who do some of that work. Um, although vascular surgery, you know, we work closely with our vascular surgeons and they do quite a bit as well. For me, it's an opportunity to keep my skills up in sort of complicated arteries. So that's why I continue to do it. Yeah. 
Yeah, it has, it's been fascinating to see some of that yeah. development of specialization. Right. Um, you right. know, that um, you know, it used to be. I think I think you're probably seeing this too. That a lot of our patients are getting older. A lot of them are getting sicker. They're surviving some major medical yeah. issue things, and uh, and so yeah. we're often seeing patients that just are not suitable for cardiac surgery that used right. to be able to go to surgery, and it's right. up it's up to you and I to kind of go in there and try to you know fix. And so some you know I have some of my partners that are just just amazing and working in very complex coronary arteries they they um they love oh, yeah. to open arteries that have been closed for years sometimes we call those you know ctos or chronic right. total occlusions and then we have you know like you say some some of my my partners are evolving into really working on these complex valves and right. um and as specifically uh, what we call a trans aortic valve replacement or TAVR. Um, that that you and I have seen over the last ten years evolved dramatically, where people were always going to cardiac surgery to replace a, a, an aortic valve that was stenotic right. and yeah. and hardened, and now it's getting where they almost always are getting fixed with these tappers, and the patients just turn around immediately. Some of them are going home same day in our facility, and um, right, it's yeah, it's, too. Yeah. it's amazing, and they feel dramatically better. So it's so satisfying and and uh, just just wonderful stuff that's evolving. Um, so quickly and, and right. exciting too, and like yeah, and really, as you alluded, yeah, closing yeah. closing those holes in hearts and stuff like that, and those can be so complex. And um, I've seen just some some amazing work done in that arena too uh, from people that just do that all the time. And right, uh, yeah. so uh, great stuff. It really is. Yeah, it's yeah. it's really it's really evolving so quick. And you and you alluded to to the just the dramatic turnaround that you can have a patient that's having a, a heart attack, a myocardial infarction, and how they how sick they will be, and how and, and how uncomfortable they'll be, and then yeah. you get in there with your skills and you open an artery, and they just dramatically turn around right in front of you, going from from being sick, yeah. like life threateningly ill, to suddenly being well again. That's uh, good stuff. Good stuff. Well, yeah, that you, part is still super fun. I mean, yeah. I'm sure you find the same, even if you've been doing it for a long time, it doesn't, that doesn't right. get old. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's true. The, the hours yeah. can be a little challenging, but yeah. The hours can be challenging, <laughs> for sure. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, so we alluded to that we're, we're operating yeah. through a catheter, you know, for a right. lot of these technologies. Can you kind of explain what, what that means and, and kind of what the, the, the work kind of looks like again? Yeah. So, um, that's a good reminder to kind of kind of remind people of the basics of what we do because sometimes I gloss over it. You know, a catheter is basically a word for a plastic tube. And mm. we the work that I do is all done through plastic tubes inserted into the vascular system, usually either from the radial artery in the wrist or in the from the femoral artery or vein sometimes uh, from in the usually in the kind of right groin area. Um, sometimes on the left. And so catheter-based technologies, we're using equipment that's designed to be threaded through small plastic tubes and then sometimes expanded so that it's bigger to fit whatever the thing is that we need to do. So everything that we do is transcatheter, I mean, through catheters, through plastic tubes. So the patient will just see a small hole then, you know, yeah, at, at, yeah. at these sites. It won't be in a big incision or anything like that. They often will heal. Right. And with if they right. have a scar at all, it'll be a tiny, you know, pinpoint tiny, sort of scar. Tiny little thing. Yeah. 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 Even the bigger holes seem to leave, you know, some of the valve stuff, we need slightly bigger tubes. But 
you know, if I have to make a, an incision, it's usually less than a centimeter. It's usually more like half a centimeter um, just to allow for the passage of the tube. Sometimes there's a little bump there at the end when it all heals up. Uh, yeah. One of the things, too, that, that, that we're doing increasingly is you, um, inserting pumps into the patient's heart um, uh, to try to, when, when their heart is too weak, uh, to drive the, right. the force of right. blood forward. Um, these pumps, you know, they're not meant to be left in forever, but they can certainly uh, temporize a patient and get, get them kind of stabilized right. for a few days until um, they either start to recover on their own through other technologies or that they are ready to go to a, a more advanced technology and stuff. So right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Also evolving quick. So it, it, would a patient ever say, Hey, I'm interested in a catheter based technology. Uh, um, sh it, I, I want a referral to Dr. McDonough. Do you ever, do they just go sign up for this themselves? Do primary care doctors send people to you? Or is this something that you're being referred yeah. to within the, the field of cardiology itself? Really good question. I think every community has its own sort of map of healthcare community, right? I, I guess I want to really emphasize with that question is like, I, I don't, I'm not like a solo crusader, right? We operate in the context of a team, right? And the, the team is multi-layered and multifaceted. So the most important thing for me, like if I'm speaking to the public, cardiovascular disease is extremely common, especially atherosclerotic disease, right? So the buildup of plaque in the arteries, there's about a 40 to 50% chance that every human is going to have some of that throughout the course of their life, right? And the combination of all cardiovascular diseases, not just plaque, it still remains the leading cause of death in the world, right? So for me, the most important thing is that people, you know, I see this all the time where people just sort of ignore their symptoms and don't come in, and then it's a much more complicated situation when it, the process could have been interrupted and stopped earlier on. So whether you come see me or one of my partners who's a, a general or non-invasive cardiologist, uh, it doesn't really matter to me. But like, if you have symptoms that we're worried from your heart, and I would say that heart symptoms are usually either pain or shortness of breath or exertional fatigue that gets worse over time and gets worse with exertion. And especially if you're getting older, or even if you're not that old, if you're my age, I'm 50, and you feel like, oh yeah, when I climb up these stairs, I'm getting a little chest pressure, I'm way more winded than I was a month ago. Don't blow that off, you know? Like that's not always a heart problem, but it might be. And jumping on that early is something that we can really make a big difference with. I mean, that's one thing we, you know, you and I love about our specialty, right? If we diagnose that and deal with it with the right medications, right diagnostic testing, and in some cases, the right procedures, you can make a huge difference in the um, trajectory of somebody's life. Yeah. And how they yeah. feel immediately. Yeah. It's uh, right. Yeah. And I, I love it when yeah. patients come back and yeah. they say, I haven't felt this good in years. Right. I, 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 I thought I was getting old. I thought I was getting overweight, oh, yeah. out, of, out of shape, you know, and then you, you that happens to me all the time. You, you do a tavern and somebody's like, I had no idea. I was just like, you know, it's like <laughs> right. valves, are, you have a working heart valve. And now the engine can run, you know? Yeah. 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 Perfect. Well, you know, what we do is very procedurally based. I mean, we're going in, we're right. doing these procedures. Um, is there a role for medications? Do we ever use medications instead of the procedures? Do we ever use medications before the procedures? Yeah, for sure. 
I mean, I think that's something that's also evolved rapidly, right? Like when you and I were in training, just that the presence of a narrowing in an artery was a justification or a need for a mechanical solution. And I think that's clearly changed and changed for the better. But it's also changed our specialty, right? Because by the time, you know, I think we're treating a lot of people with stable symptoms with medications first, uh, not only because they're safe and effective, but they are effective is what I meant to say, right? They're effective at reducing the need for procedures and probably also reducing the hard outcomes of the things that we worry about, like death and heart attack. But by the time we're seeing them, it's more complicated, right? So our work has gotten, I think, a little more, definitely more. It's not just a quick old stent anymore. It's it's really, it's it's a complicated thing about with often multiple vessels involved and how best to approach that. So we all have to be very thoughtful, but I think medicines clearly have a role, especially cholesterol lowering medicines and certain types of blood pressure lowering medicines, which have also been proven to be good for the heart, you know, especially beta blockers, uh, for example, I think are really important. I like to tell my patients, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, not, it's not a question yeah. of, of, of procedure right. or medication. It's going to be right. procedure and medication always. hundred percent, hundred percent. Yeah. They're like, when can I stop all these medicines? And I totally get that. Nobody wants to take pills, but we just have endless piles of outcome data that saying taking these pills is associated with the likelihood of living longer and having less, right. you know, problems. Yeah. So, right. Um, and I, just, I just always get sort of hung up on the cholesterol thing because I think statins have been so vilified for reasons that like, if, like it's sort of the cultural history of vilification of statins is wild to me. Like, you know, where ideas come from and how they propagate and, <laughs> you know, yeah, some people do have side effects. The vast majority of the side effects are mild and self-limited, meaning they go away if you stop the drug and choose something else. And people are like, well, don't I need cholesterol to keep my brain working or whatever? But the thing I always remind people is like a newborn baby who is developing the most neurons per minute of any living thing in the world has a LDL cholesterol of 20 to 40. And we're worried about lowering yours from 160 to, you know, seven, you know, trying to get that <laughs> down. And it cholesterol, LDL cholesterol is by and large, a necessary ingredient for the development of coronary heart disease. Like you and I could sleep all night, every night, if the entire <laughs> world really understood this, <laughs> you know, right. and, um, you know, there are some people who don't tolerate medicines. Well, that's understandable, but, you know, natural selection did not choose for longevity. Right. And, you know, atherosclerosis is a real thing, even for people who, sometimes live healthfully, right? And not that health, eating right is a huge part of treating cardiovascular disease. Exercise is a huge part of treating cardiovascular disease, but even still there are some people who we can make a big impact on and preventing problems by the right medication. Absolutely. Yeah. I bet, I bet many people in, our, in the audience have heard about somebody that they know, a friend, a, a relative, whatever, that has had a stent in their heart. Yeah. Um, and and which would which would kind of indicate that this is a fairly common procedure, you know, or or that interventional cardiologists right. are to touch a lot the lives of a lot of patients. How common are interventional cardiology procedures? Would you say? Yeah, I think they're very common. I guess uh, I don't know. Uh, maybe I should know the number of interventional cardiologists in the country, but there's a lot, and it it, it speaks to the disease process because it's so common, right? 
but yeah, they're extremely common. At Providence, Alaska, where I do the majority of my work, we have a population, we serve a population of maybe, well, there's 700 and some thousand people in Alaska, but, you know, not everybody's in our catchment, but I would say our rough catchment is probably four to 500,000 people, and we do about a thousand stents a year or something like that, so... And that's with, and I think that's with careful selection of patients who really need the procedure, not just because there's a blockage. Right. Right. And I would say it was probably less, I mean, some some of your patients are so far away from Anchorage that they're being treated with lytic therapy and may not even get a stent. I don't know. Probably. Yeah. uh, Oh, that's a really, that's a very, actually, I mean, I could go on and on about that issue, but I'd say about half of our acute STEMIs or ST segment elevation myocardial infarctions, those are heart attacks that are the kind of the heart attack that you see on TV. Um, About half of them are treated first with um, thrombolytic therapy. Right. Um, clot busting medicine for our audience. Bust, yeah. yeah. Right. So instead exactly. of instead of getting a stent. Stent yeah. stent is the right. the the best technology yeah. definitely demonstrated in studies yeah. when a patient is close right. to a hospital within 120 yeah. minutes of getting there. But when you're living yeah. way out in rural Alaska, um, that's probably not gonna be gonna get not gonna yeah, be those, able to get the hospital there. Yeah, but, but those patients are all transferred to us and um, yeah. I will say that we stent <laughs> the vast majority of them you know, within a, usually within six hours of their arrival, because yeah. we all know, like when you go in there, the clot busting medication kind of works yeah. sort of sometimes, <clears throat> but yeah. Right. Yeah. And, and has increased risks too. For sure. Yeah. Uh, a lot of my patients uh, ask me this too, like, so how long is this stent going to last? You know, so, so how, so right. how effective and how lasting is a, 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 a stenting procedures, let's say specifically. Uh, that's one of my favorite topics yeah. <laughs> um, because it is, it is, I think, poorly understood by a lot of people, including a lot of physicians. So to me, there's sort of like the global answer, which, you know, I, we don't really put a timeline on the stent, right? Uh, I try to think of it much as you would think about a mortgage, right? It's like, what is the percentage chance of failure over time? And the risk is accumulated over time, right? But the other piece of that equation or discussion is how well is the stent implanted and where is it, right? So stents that are poorly implanted, which I think our specialty is sometimes guilty of sort of just being too quick to not paying enough attention to the details, but stents that are well implanted, meaning properly sized for the vessel and expanded well so that the the lumen or the free space in the artery is nice and big. And those stents often do very well, can last a lifetime. Mm -hmm. I've seen that many times. There is a percent chance failure. There's a non-zero percent chance failure of stents. And I usually, you know, there's different studies and depending on the era and the type of stent used. But, you know, I usually tell patients that there is a 5% chance in the next several years that we need to come back and work on this again. Mm-hmm. And that's, that's been sort of roughly true, I think, over time. Some of the studies would say higher, some would say lower. It just depends on all these different little nuanced factors, right? Sure. Yeah. 
I like to tell people too. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I, alluding to all of that, and, and generally, what happens is you know the modern stents that we have has really driven yeah. down the failure rate right. of these. Usually, sure. the failure is is because the the stent uh, doesn't heal well, as you alluded, or it or it right. um, the healing is actually aggressive, and they get scar tissue right. in the stent. Right. But the vast right. majority, as you said do right. extremely well and i tell people that that you know once we kind of fix it with a stent you you get a yeah. chance to kind of do a redo but right. if you don't take care of the stent if you don't take care of your cholesterol your blood pressure your diabetes your, you, you right. quit smoking that you know uh, then it can re-narrow just like any any other artery in your body you know but if you that's take care of it it'll last you a right. lifetime so that's absolutely true yeah. yeah that's that's a really good point there's often this sort of like tug of war in our world right between stents and open heart surgery right i i think it's important to talk to patients about their sort of lifetime trajectory right like you know a 40 year old with proximal led disease is a very different patient than an 80 year old right and the we all know like a, if the lesion is simple a stent should do fine if the lesion's a little bit complicated or longer you know, a bypass where and a surgeon would take an artery from the inside of the chest wall, the left internal thoracic artery, and reattach it to the heart. That particular bypass graft is probably the most durable thing you can do to solve that problem for that location, right? Mm -hmm. And so, you know, I really try to discuss people, their options, but, you know, surgery has a little bit of elevated upfront risk, right? And so kind of back to the mortgage analogy do you want to put some more money down for a lower interest rate in the long run you know everybody's chooses differently and some people are like oh, i really have to get back to work and you're the particular area that needs work is amenable to stenting and we can get a good excellent result with that and i think that's also a very reasonable strategy right so great these discussions are super important with patients about what yeah. their goals are yeah well, and, and do you have yeah. recommendations for patients' lifestyle, um, you know, a after having one of these procedures? Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Move more. <laughs> eat more vegetables. <laughs> Very good. Think of a donut and don't <laughs> eat that, you know. Like, <laughs> and don't eat that. Yeah. No, I think, you know, we – we have a problem of excess, right? Excess calories in this country. And the, I think most of us recognize that um, the combination of cholesterol and excess sugar leading to insulin resistance and diabetes and inactivity, you have that stuff. And then if you have hypertension, hopefully not smoking, that that is the nidus for progressive atherosclerosis, right? And so if you can move your muscles and get the metabolic engine working, you not only are more mobile, which is great for your lifestyle, but you actually I mean exercise is a medicine for heart disease, right? You don't have to train for a marathon, but you should do. I mean, I, I try to expand a little bit beyond sort of our society guidelines, which is say 30 minutes a day, you know, like, there's data that says up to nine hours a week of at least moderate intensity exercise, you keep getting more and more benefit from, right? So mm -hmm. there's a lot of healthy stuff that happens from moderate intensity exercise, meaning enough that you are sweaty a little bit, that you can still speak in sentences, but maybe the sentences are shorter before you have to take a breath. Like that level of exercise, if you can do that for at least 30 minutes a day, ideally maybe an hour per day, 
that that is really good for you. And I usually recommend some resistance training too for people. I, I don't think weightlifting is just for um, bodybuilders. And I don't think you have to lift huge weights. But I think if you do some, it does, there's a lot of evidence that your metabolism is more healthy. So you have a body, you should use it. It's not meant to sit on a couch. Yeah. I like that. I'm going to have to yeah. use that that yeah. line too. Yeah. I, yeah. I, I like to tell people exercise yeah. is powerful medicine that, that probably, yeah. probably, you know, like you said, like you right. said, if you can move, uh, even walking, yeah. there's nothing to even apologize walking. about walking. For if sure. you can get 100%. out and walk for uh, yeah. 30 to 60 minutes a day, right. dramatic improvements in, in outcomes like the lifestyle you know, or I'm right. sorry, lifespan increases, um, hospitalizations right. decrease, uh, and people feel better. They come back and they say, boy, God, I wish I would have done this a long time ago. I just feel more energy. Right. I feel, you know, my weight is oh, easier to manage. Right. Uh, everything gets better with exercise. It's a, it is a powerful right. medicine, as powerful as anything I prescribe for sure. So, you know, in Alaska, we have, um, because our weather is bad, there in, you know, in Anchorage, there's a few places, and one of them is called the dome, where it's like this big, sort of inflated uh, roof, right? It's like this, and it's the size of a couple football fields put together, and they've mm -hmm. got soccer fields inside it and all sorts of stuff. And there's a track that goes around. And we actually, at Alaska Heart, our practice uh, sponsor an exercise program for our patients that can go there and do stuff. If I had my, if I was running the world, which I think a lot of people are thankful I'm not running the world, but <laughs> if, if I was, I, I'd say before you make an appointment at the Alaska Heart Institute, I would send you to the dome and we'd have a nurse just watching people walk around the track. And the people who said, oh, I'm starting to feel better and better, like you, you may not even need a cardiologist, right? And then the few people who are like, I'm feeling worse and worse, you know, come see me, <laughs> right? right? Like, I mean, that would be so powerful if people could just you start, know, with that. That yeah. start with that. And unfortunately, our lives and society is just not constructed for that. Like we're, we're trapped in this sort of like, endless treadmill of got to go to work and you know and there's just not time built into life for most people right, right. and you kind of um, said you know yeah, you mentioned yeah. an excess of calories in this country right. but i would say this is becoming a worldwide phenomenon oh yeah it's the worldwide for sure it's yeah. not just the united states for sure i mean i think we struggle with the sort of the obesity numbers a little bit more than the rest of the world but like if you look at India or even the Asian countries where there's a ton of grain, you know, a ton of rice, there's a ton of cardiovascular disease in those countries, right? right. Um, and more affluence so, yeah. leads, you know, right. affluence leads to more availability of right. calories. And um, I mean, there's right. increasing obesity in China these days. And for uh, sure. It's, yeah. It is a global, you know, I, um, you know, go, if you travel to Europe, you'll see that there's more, more obesity out there than there's ever been. And so. Right, right. We have to have to think about those things. But, we have to get back to the before the um, agricultural revolution. Get back to the nomadic hunter gatherer society. <laughs> right? That would be <laughs> well. Ian and I get you get a chance to see that up front. I think. We do. Yeah, we do. Yeah. So, uh, you, you regarding the future of interventional cardiology, yeah. is there anything that you see coming down the pike? You, some studies that you've seen in like that that really are getting you excited at all, John? Yeah, good question. I think you know, there's kind of for me, there's two layers to that because, like, part of it, there's some stuff that's really exciting to me as a as a sort of the craft of interventional cardiology, right? Like things like, oh yeah, that'd be really cool to do, right? And then there's the stuff that 
really matters to patients and their long-term outcome, which is obviously by far more important, right? Uh, this, I think what matters to people and outcomes is often more the simple stuff, to be honest, right? Like, but that said, I think the things that were, that have me excited is I think continued iteration and improvement in technique with regard to stent placement. So like, you know, I'm a personally a big believer in the use of intravascular imaging for stent placement. Like I think it makes us better. It means we're putting a little ultrasound or in some cases, little um, optical catheters inside arteries to measure the inside. And there's been a lot of iteration and how best to do that and what, how to use that information. And I, I think that's going to keep getting better, you know? Um, I think our valve replacement technology is also continues to get better and better, especially for the aortic valve. And there's some really interesting stuff on the horizon for the mitral valve, which is a much more complicated space um, or complicated valve to work on. But um, just like iPhones uh, or, or Androids, I guess, because things are slicker and smaller and more powerful, you know, the technology is evolving to be able to, fix valves through smaller holes through smaller catheters and in ways that don't involve as much trauma to then therefore get patients through the procedures more easily so i think that i don't know if you've heard of anything else that's coming down but those are kind of the areas that i see continued improvement and yeah absolutely yeah and and more valve work too you know we're getting better about treating other valve stuff other valves too yeah we didn't talk about the tricuspid valve but that's that's buzzing a lot these days yeah sure and and getting better at mitrals you know that's been one of our challenges is getting mitral valve repairs to be lasting and and uh, right and meaningful um and it's more complex than the the aortic valve for sure but yeah one of the problems with one of the problems right with mitral valve disease i think is like a lot of people get bad mitral valve disease at a point in life when they're very old and frail. And then it becomes a complicated discussion about, is it worth doing anything at all? Right. Are you going to meaningfully impact the trajectory of this patient's life? And, and nihilists would say, ah, probably not, but there's definitely a lot of people who they want to feel better for the last few years of their life. And um, I think that's a worthy goal. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Agreed. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. We've been increasingly talking about, this is something we don't talk a lot about traditionally in medicine, but we're increasingly doing it about, you know, disparity of access to care, you know, especially with minorities and that sort of thing. And some people may think that there's not a lot of ethnic diversity in Alaska, but that's not Mm -hmm. true at all. Uh, You you guys have your share as well. It may look differently than than other places in the country. I was hoping maybe you could address that and and what sorts of uh, what what how you and your group and and are trying to address those barriers to care for patients that, you know, through economic or or ethnic. Uh, right. you know, disparities um, are having difficulties getting access to the, the standard treatments. Yeah, that's a, that's a thank you for that question. It's a really good question. Um, yeah, for people who don't know, Anchorage, Alaska, there is um, zip codes in Anchorage, Alaska that will rival San Francisco for the numbers of different languages spoken and sort of statistical measures of cultural diversity. So we in Alaska have folks from all parts of Asia, in particular, all parts of the Eastern Europe. There's a huge Ukrainian population here, for example. There are a ton of 
folks from the Pacific Isles, so Samoa and other isles, and a lot of folks who don't speak English, and then not to mention the Alaska Native population, right? And right. socioeconomic lines split along a lot of split faults along a lot of pathways to getting to good healthcare, and it's it's a tough one to make better, you know. Mm-hmm. I can work all I want on myself in terms of the, I guess I would say, trying to fight unconscious or implicit biases about how we treat people or how we talk to people, right? I think it's that's a, something that every physician needs to be really aware of, right? But I also have to train the front desk staff to treat everybody who comes through the door equally. And that's, you know, our philosophy is like, you know, we're, we're going to treat you no matter what, you know, it doesn't matter if you're the rich white person or the Samoan family who, you know, seems a little different than you. Right. Mm-hmm. But I don't actually think that's enough. Right. Cause like even getting to us before people even see us, there are so many barriers. Right. And so I think it's a big problem. You know, I see so many people late stages of their disease who just never got in to see a doctor at all, mm-hmm. you know, and there's, ge- there's geographic issues right in Alaska, right. We have, I've got, but we have a lot of patients who don't even have acute problems who just by the fact that they live in a village outside, you know, Nome, Alaska, you know, come in way too late for their problem. Right. And so yeah. those things are, I, I personally am of the opinion that some of this ought to be solvable. Like we have the technology and we have the ability, we could put thrombolytic medication in every little clinic in the state, it wouldn't be that big a deal. You know, we could treat heart attacks and we could do stuff using information technology to get people cared for better. But there's so many barriers to it. It's it's like every time I try to edge into this yeah. zone, you get the outreach, shot down. I think the outreach yeah. is important. I think yeah. I think trying yeah. to get that word out. I think trying to yeah. approach those communities where they where they are, you know, and, and right. the media they they consume, right. and getting out and getting the message of here's the symptoms of a heart attack. Here, you know, like right. here here's here's how to see somebody. Like as you indicated, you're climbing stairs, you're getting chest pressure. Um, right. And I love it that we're talking about it now. You know, I mean, yeah, that's not yeah. something we talked about a lot in training, but we're really talking yeah. about it increasing. And that's the first step, uh, for, frankly. Right. And um, and I know in my own practice, I'm trying to be more conscious of, like like I indicated, the more outreach, you know, maybe going out yeah. and giving talks in the community, meeting people where they're right. at, not just, you know, not just educated Caucasians that, you know, that, that right. like, to, like to go to evening meetings and stuff like that, but meeting people right. really where they are. And so yeah. anyway, it's, it's good. And, and I'm glad that we're talking about it. So, well, John, I want to, I want to thank yeah. you um, for, for, you know, uh, sitting down with me today and, and talking about this. It's, it's really good stuff. And I, I, I can hear the passion in your voice about, you know, what, what you do and, and it's exciting work. And are there, are there any other last last comments you want to make uh regarding what you do oh yeah i mean i i'm super it's a it's it's a huge privilege to be able to do this work and um i i just want to uh, thank you know there's a lot of other people who make it possible right and like a ton and you know everybody from the front desk staff to the nurses and the technologists in the cath lab you know those 
I think sometimes those folks are often not, don't receive the recognition that they should. And uh, uh, there's a lot of people who really care. So like people should know that when you come to the hospital with a heart attack, you know, there's a team of between the ER and the cath lab and the post-operative care. There's probably 20 or 30 people that are going to touch you, all of whom really believe in that mission, mm -hmm. you know? And so just, it is a team. Yeah. It's a team. Yeah team-based yeah. sort of thing so that's great yeah. great call out too so yeah, yeah. Uh, increasingly important to remember that too as um you know uh we've yeah. had a lot of uh, a lot of people leave healthcare uh with right. with uh, covid and that sort of thing there's been a, a lot of change yeah. staff and everything like that and so yeah. it's increasingly important for us to remember how important uh, the whole team is when we're when very we're much so yeah uh, but well great well, thank yeah. you again, John, for your, your uh, participation today and your comments. Um, uh, and yeah, I thank wanna, you, Jack. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, thanks again. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. And I want to thank our audience, too, for, for listening in today. Uh, uh, thanks for joining us today on Heart Matters. Uh, we look forward to continuing the important conversation on equity and diversity and inclusion in healthcare with more experts from Providence in future episodes as well. Uh, make sure to listen to all our shows on Dash Radio under Future of Health Radio or your favorite podcast platform. And follow us on social media. We can be found on Twitter and uh, or now X and Facebook at Providence and Instagram under Providence Health Systems. To learn more about our mission and our pro uh, programs and services, go to Providence.org. And please remember, the information provided during this program is for educational purposes only. You should always consult your healthcare provider if you have any questions regarding a medical condition or treatment. Thanks for listening. And remember, at Providence, we see the life in you. Thank you.